Good morning, y'all. So glad you're here. Welcome to the Story Church. I'm so grateful that y'all made the time and also so grateful for everybody that's been a part of this service so far, for the band and, and Leslie, Lily with the prayer and the, the volunteers outside and, and the good coffee and all the stuff that makes Sunday mornings happen at the Story. Um, truly grateful for everyone who uh, is making that work. So, uh, hey, I just want to say, I just wanna say a, a special welcome to those of you that are here for the first time or you're new-ish to the story, just welcome to you and thank you especially for taking the time this weekend. I want you to know as well, there's a little bit of a 300-pound gorilla in the room at the story right now that, uh, that we are going through a season of tremendous change and transformation. Now, don't get me wrong. This is an exciting and exhilarating season. We're pumped about where things are headed and we're, I just can't wait for y'all to see how cool it's gonna be in the next season of the, story, uh, of the story's life. But we've got a little bit of work to do to get uh, from where we are to where we're going, geographically and otherwise. <laughs> so it's going to be, here's the deal. We have six Sundays left uh, on this campus. Six Sundays left as part of St. Luke's United Methodist, which has been a tremendous, loving, generous mother church for us. And we will be eternally grateful for St. Luke's and all that they have done for us. But um, we were informed this year, earlier this year, five or six months ago, that by the end of this year, we'll need to find a new home for this campus. Timber Grove campus will stay where it is, doing its thing, it's blowing up, they're meeting right now, and y'all say a little prayer for them, they're just doing great things over there. But this campus needs a new home. And I've been saying for about uh, 20 straight weeks that I'll have an announcement soon. So you guys, I'm gonna have an announcement real soon, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's going to be amazing. I think God's going to blow all of our minds. Um, it's just not quite time to roll any kind of announcement out. I just want y'all to know that Christmas Eve will be the last time we gather here for worship. And if you aren't coming back before 2022, for whatever reason, you don't like the message, or maybe you have family plans, I don't know. But if you don't come back until 2022, you won't find us here. You'll find us in another location uh, this campus anyway, in another location, soon to be announced. In the meantime, we have to realize as a community and anyone who loves this church, whether you're a member here or not, that this is crunch time. Like we've never faced a challenge like this before. We have established a new nonprofit church, a nonprofit entity, a legal corporation called the Story Church, that we had to establish before we become independent in 2022, January 1st, 2022, um, because we had to start getting our ducks in a row. Another challenge here is just where operating capital comes from. The moment, you know, December 31st turns into January 1st, because we will no longer have any kind of a connection or safety net that we've had in the past. So uh, the story community has to be ready, and th there's a real sense of urgency around this so that we don't take a step back during this transition, and we don't even just hold our ground, but we, we advance. So there's a real opportunity here, and the more we're able to announce the details of all this, the more you'll see what a massive opportunity God's putting in front of us to advance the mission that we have, to inspire non-religious and skeptical people to follow Jesus. A huge opportunity, but we all have to do our part. It's all hands on deck time. So what we've done is established something called the Transition Fund. We're trying to raise operating capital and transition money to help us with uh, securing the lease on our new home 
as well as the remodeling, redecorating, and refurbishing that we have to do there. And then there's all the moving costs and operational costs for the first couple of months to keep our staff in a good place. We all love our staff. I think we have the best church staff in Houston. They're incredible. And they've been incredible through this whole change. And I want to make sure they are secure and, and taken care of, as do all of you who love the story. So there are a few ways that you can help us here. We're not, at, we're not passing any plates right now. We're not asking you to write checks right now. All we're asking for you to do is plan and pray and let us know what you can commit to and invest in the transition fund between now and December 31st at 11.59 p.m., all right? So you can get us that, that money at any point between now and then, but we just need to know so we can plan and steward this church and its resources well. So there's a white card that y'all were given. I see some of you have that little white card that says our next chapter on it. And, and you can see on the flip side a few different ways to engage here. So you can visit the story.church slash transition by, by which you can let us know your name and the amount that you plan to give to the transition fund between now and the end of the year. You can also, this is the way I would do it if I were you, just simply send a text message to this uh, secure anonymous phone line leaving your name and the amount of money that you intend to commit to the transition fund. Simple as that. That's all we need so we can plan. We'll trust you to get the money in between now and then. We're not going to send any collection agencies or anything, all right? So all we need to know is what you're planning so that we can plan as a church because God is about to do a, a great thing here. And this is the time for us to band together as a church and, and show just how much we believe and what he's done here at the story, hundreds, up to a thousand, almost a thousand baptisms in the last six plus years. And now as we move forward, I think what we're going to see is that what we, the story we've written so far is just the prologue. There's something even greater, a movement that is afoot that we get to be a part of. And so I just want y'all to know about the transition fund, and I thank you in advance. We really need to start hearing from people who love this church. This, people have been asking, what can we do? What can we do? Here we go, all right? We're six Sundays out, so here we go. Um, it, it's time. So thank you in advance for your generosity there. Okay, I do have something else to talk about. It's not just money today, okay? So we're in week two of this series about change, and it's inspired by these changes that we're talking about right now. It's just like... How much change can we take? Y'all feel that right now, like going back to March of 2020? I remember coming out of 2019 thinking, gosh, thank goodness that year's over. Like that was a terrible year. And then 2020 happened. And when 2020 ended, we were like, thank goodness the worst year ever is over. And then for some of y'all, 2021 has been better. As, as I said last week, there's been times when I have longed for the days of 2020 uh, during this year as we've uh, dealt with all of this transition. But this isn't just about the stories change and transition happening. This is really about the fact that change is a universal truth. And the beautiful thing that change has taught me in terms of leading myself as, as a Christian, leading my own life and leading my family, leading some men that I'm discipling, leading this church through one wave of change after another, what I've realized, what, the, what God has taught me about change is that seasons of massive change can lead to seasons of massive transformation. Now, there's certain kinds of transformation that God can do in you 
that can only happen during times of great disruption and upheaval. But what you have to understand is the, the arrow there between significant transition and significant transformation, that arrow, I think, symbolizes tough conversations <laughs> because it's through the tough conversations that we have with Jesus in our own life, but also with those that we are leading through change, that we are actually transformed, that our eyes are open. There's something about change that opens us up in ways that cruise control cannot. So I've known guys that will hit cruise control for years. Guys are great at cruise control. I've done seasons of cruise control that lasted like 20 years at a time. Like you can just hit cruise control and you go to work, you go home, you go out with friends, you go see your family, you, you know, you go on vacation once or twice a year, you go to like 30 weddings a year when you're in your 20s, right? You, maybe you'd follow some football team around and tailgate and they break your heart every single year and you invest your life in these things. That's what cruise control looks like. But then something hits you, like a two-before across the, the head, like something rocks you. Either something good, like you get married, or you, you hold your first child in the hospital for the first time, and you've got a little miracle in your hands, and that rocks you. You're opened up suddenly to real change in terms of your perspective and your priorities, right? Only change can do that to us. When we're cruising, we don't have those openings. And negative changes can do the same thing. When you lose someone you love or you lose your job or you go have a crisis, that opens you up. So something about change outside of you or around you in your circumstances opens you up to change inside of you and within you. And so these moments are opportunities, but they're only opportunities we can seize when we know how to have tough conversations. The obvious problem is the being the pleasant people that we are, we, we avoid tough conversations like the plague. Any master avoiders in the house today? Thank you, Ryan. Scott, I'm right there with you, brother. Same here. I'm a master avoider. Listen, during times of great change and disruption, avoiding tough conversations is the worst thing you can do. It's toxic how we lead our lives and lead others sometimes by avoiding tough talks. I was raised to avoid tough. Why have tough conversations during times of life that are already tough enough? Why make them harder? Just ask someone how they're doing, would they like a cup of coffee? And then talk about the Astros. Like that's way better, you know, that's the lie. Those are moments that are ripe for tough conversations, couched in love. We just have to know how to do them. And if you're a Christian, there's really no excuse because Jesus is so comfortable having tough conversations. That's obvious from the four gospels. He has one tough talk after another and he sets a template for us. He embodies it for us. And so he shows us how to go about tough conversations. So if you or someone you love is going through a season of change or if you're about to, if you're not now, you're about to, okay? You need to know it's not just your responsibility to survive times of change. It's your responsibility to be prepared for them and to prepare others that you're leading to be ready for them and to learn how to thrive in times of change. So if, you're, if, if this is a struggle for you, I hope today's message is a very practical sort of template. We're going to follow Jesus through some of the tough talks that he had and look at three different things that I think he does on repeat that are helpful to us. So the first thing that Jesus does to initiate tough conversations is he comes down to our level. He comes to our level. He meets people on their level. 
And we see that obviously the most obvious way that he does this is just physically. Like Jesus said a lot of times, I came down from heaven. <laughs> like he left his position, his post, his throne of power, and he came to meet people who had less power than him, but he met them on their turf, sort of. It was his turf, but they felt like <laughs> it was their turf. And he, he met them where they were. He loved them for who they are. He looked them eye to eye, and it felt like a home game to them. Now, we're all going to have this other talk with Jesus one day, this tough talk with Jesus that will be on his turf. <laughs> one day, we're all going to meet Jesus, and it'll be an away game. But first, he comes to us, and we have a home game. And he, it, it's to put us at ease. It's to comfort and calm us. Why? Because comfortable, calm, soothed, assured people tell the truth more often than uncomfortable, scared people do. Think back to your childhood with me, and if you were like me, you, you probably got called to the principal's office a few times a semester, okay? So I was, I was a problem child. I was a class clown. You can imagine I talked a lot, still do, and it got me in trouble. But I was thinking back, like, anytime you go to the principal's office, I don't think any child in the history of children has ever told the truth in the principal's office. What do you do in the principal's office? You survive, your goal is to leave that office unscathed. And so you point the finger, you blame others, you beg and plead, you justify your actions, you make excuses, whatever it takes to get out of that situation. But a principal who wants to really get somewhere with a, a troubled child, like any parent who wants to get somewhere with your troubled child, you know you get further with them when you meet them where they are. You go to them in a place that's comfortable for them, some of you who are parents of small children, you even know the value of getting down on your knees with them, eye to eye. So tell me about this. Why did you throw that Thomas the Tank Engine at your sister's eye or whatever? I don't know. Like, it's easier to do this than it is to do this. You get somewhere like this, right? Jesus models that for us in physically coming down to us on our level. He didn't have to do that. You get that, right? If Jesus is who he said he was, and I believe that he is, obviously, a pastor, right? If he is God, he did not have to come meet us on our level. He could have stayed high and mighty and given us a choice. You're in or you're out, and that's it. No, he came to meet us where we are. That's important. If you're a parent, meet your child where they are in times of change if you want to make a see a transformation in their life. If you're leading your company through a season of change, some of you own or manage businesses. You will have more success leading your workers, your team, through times of great tumult and turnover if you go meet them on their turf and you show them you're in their corner rather than hiding away in your office. And if they want to see you, they can come and see you behind your big desk. And you remind them you're the boss. You're not going to get very far with your team leading that way. If you have a, an associate or, a, or an acquaintance who you've been trying to, to, to bring to Jesus, and it's this mission that you're on, and it's a good mission and a godly one, but you're approaching it like your goal is to sufficient, sufficiently like strong arm or shame them until they meet you here at the Story Church on a Sunday morning, until they come to our turf. No, you don't have to lead them to Jesus that way. You'll have more success introducing them to Jesus on their turf when it's a home game for them 
when they're at ease, when they know you're in their corner, and then, you know, hopefully one day by the grace of God, they come to a church and they get connected and all that. But the introduction can happen by you going to them instead of waiting for them to come to you. We know this. This is common sense. But Jesus embodied this over and over again. He didn't just uh, come to our level physically, though. Jesus also came to our level relationally. And this is, uh, this is one of the coolest things, I think, about Jesus, is that he came to our level physically, but then he actually became one of us, behaved like one of us. Not only did he put himself on an equal plane as us, but he called himself a servant of us or a slave. He became less than one of us. He humbled himself to the point of being a servant or a slave. That's the, the passage that Leslie prayed earlier from Philippians chapter two. This is a beautiful image of Jesus that was actually one of the first poems or songs anyone ever wrote about Jesus. We think the early church sang these lines about Jesus because this is one of the things that meant the most to them about their new Lord and Savior. And this is what they used to sing about Jesus, the servant. In your relationships with one another, this is just the introduction, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here's the song. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's who he came to be for us. And it wasn't just by taking the cross that he served us. He was a servant in daily life, a servant of those he was trying to change, trying to transform, trying to save. We know this because of how he interacted with people. So Jesus was not like every other man. Every other man pretty much thinks we have all the answers. <laughs> That's why we never stop for directions. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who actually never needed directions. And yet, he always asked questions. Have you ever noticed, like, how many questions Jesus asked? It's really interesting. So, like, in the Gospels, 307 times Jesus asked questions. 307 times. 180 of those questions he asked in response to a question. Isn't that interesting? So someone came to him, almighty rabbi, I have a question, you have the answer, here's my question, what's your answer? And then he asked them a question. That's not assuming the rightful authority of the rabbi and the son of God that he was, that he is. No, he asked questions, and only three different times did Jesus definitively answer someone's question without asking them a question in return. Isn't that interesting? Like that's a very humble posture for a man to take, especially when he's the only man who actually had all the answers. I mean, if I actually had all the answers, I would never stop telling you them. <laughs> because I would want you to know that I'm the answer man. But Jesus knew something that only the best leaders know. Jesus knew that it's one thing to spoon feed the answers to the people he was leading, and it's another to show them how to answer the questions themselves. 
And he knew that he wouldn't be around physically forever, and he wanted them to be ready for what they were going to face. And so he asked questions. Think about all the questions Jesus asked. Some of them are very familiar. Why do you worry? Why are you anxious? Do you think that by worrying, you can add a single hour to your life? Why are you afraid? Where is your faith? Right? Uh, Do you understand what I'm doing for you? He asked. What are they saying about me? Who do you think that I am? Do you love me? These questions he would ask, and then he would listen. Then he would ask more questions. If you want to engage people you're leading in deep and meaningful, hard conversations, learn to ask questions and listen like Jesus did. Something I'm learning too. I, I, I haven't figured this one out, but I know Jesus set the template for us. The second thing that I see Jesus doing with tough conversations is speaking with both grace and truth. And we all know, we're well acquainted with the Jesus who speaks with grace. Come to me, you weary soul. Oh, you are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. We know that Jesus. We like that Jesus. And it really upsets us when Christians can't seem to be as nice as Jesus was. Why is it, I've heard a lot of people say, why is it that I know atheists who are nicer than the Christians that I know? Okay, I understand that point, and I do concede that point. There are some really, really problematic Christian jerks in the world, okay? I think that we can all agree with that. But I I think we have to really wrestle with the assumption that Jesus was nice and only nice and always nice because he was not always nice. Jesus said some very unpleasant things to some seemingly pleasant people. It seems like he just goes out of his way to be harsh sometimes, y'all. Sometimes even the questions that he asked were harsh. Like, you brood of vipers, how can anything good come from something so evil? He said, that's really harsh, Jesus. It's really mean, you know? Uh, How long do I have to be with this perverse generation? He said, not nice at all. It's kind of rude. My feelings are hurt, Jesus. Like he was, he was always saying things that offended, but he didn't say them just to be offensive. Why did Jesus say these things? Because they were true. And leaders always tell the truth, even when it's hard to hear. Good leaders, not even leaders, good people who love the people they're they're leading or influencing. If you love the people around you, you will not keep the truth from them because you understand that the only way to be gracious to them is to be honest with them, right? I I think this is an important thing that, that it took me a while to get this. So when I went to seminary, I wasn't a Christian yet. I was uh, a, a nominal Christian at best. I just used the Christian brand as a vehicle for what really mattered to me, which were my politics and kind of activism. Sometimes I think I overplayed the whole activism thing. I wasn't a very good activist, but I was a very outspoken activist, <laughs> all right? And I, I, wanted, I wanted the world to change. I wanted I wanted the beloved community. I wanted social justice, and that's what my whole life was about, and I just used the church to get me there. So I, went to, I chose the most left of center, uh, theologically left of center 
uh, seminary that I could find. Most of the professors fit the bill. There was a couple that did not, and nobody liked them, including me. Because this one guy in particular, Dr. Chun, who was a, a, a South Korean uh, professor, he always talked about sin and judgment and hell and just really such a downer. You know, it's like, Dr. Chun, the world is dark enough. What the world needs is some hope. You know, the world doesn't need to hear more about how bad it is. And I remember during one Q&A session, uh, one kid said, you know, Romans says that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So what's with all this condemnation talk and all this sin talk? I really think you're turning away an entire generation of people from the church. How could you do such a thing? And Dr. Chun, very measured, very thoughtful, very slow to speak, said, because if we fail to talk about sin, if we fail to be honest about sin, we rob people of the opportunity to repent. We steal from them the chance to turn it all around. Because you can't repent of something you don't acknowledge. You can't solve a problem that in your mind is not a problem at all. And so in many instances, not all, if you don't know somebody on the streets, you just approach them and say, this is the sin, I see the sin in your <laughs> that's, not, that's not the point. But if you love somebody and you're really trying to lead them or influence them in some, in some good ways, to act as though sin is not a thing or is not a problem is not really love at all. That's not grace at all. It's, it's really a shame. It's a missed opportunity. Listen, Christian accountability is not judginess. It is what grace looks like, right? It, it, is, it is grace in the form of truth. And I know that we've all heard this thing, Christians do not judge each other because Jesus himself said, and it's amazing to me how many non-Christians know this, Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And they all know it in the King James. It's really weird. It's like, lest ye be judged, okay? How do you know this? You haven't been in church in 20 years. I just know it. Jesus said, don't judge, right? So why are you so judgy? Well, the passage that they're referring to is actually the one where Jesus talks about taking the speck out of your brother's eye before removing the log from your own, that famous passage. And it's true. Jesus says, be careful when you judge, because as you judge, you will be judged. So why do you take the speck out of your brother's eye before or it says, while there is still a log in your own. Boom. Take that, judgy Christians, with your tough talk, your hard conversations. Just be nice, right? No, no, no. Wait, wait. Pump the brakes and finish reading what he said, because this is how that teaching ends. After he says, why do you take the speck out of your brother's eye without, while there's still a log in your own? Jesus said this next. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye. Ooh. First take, so, so the point isn't that we're not supposed to hold each other accountable. We're supposed to talk about sin, my sin and yours, in that order. Deal with your own sin. Have the tough conversation Jesus wants to have with you first before you engage someone else in their tough conversation. 
Otherwise, you'll look like a hypocrite, plain and simple. And you can even lead that tough conversation with someone else with what Jesus showed you in, that, in your conversation with him. Y'all follow me? That gets you on the same level and it gets you set up for more transformation, all right? So we can't get past something we refuse to acknowledge, all right? That's what it looks like to lead through change and adversity, is helping one another name the sin in our life and repent of it. Third, how did Jesus have these hard conversations? This is probably the most important one, y'all. Jesus believed that people can change. Jesus believed that people can change. That's the only reason he had hard conversations with people. Jesus did not have arbitrary, arbitrarily mean conversations just to shame people or make them feel worse about themselves than they already felt or to show how much he knew, how much better he was. No, Jesus did not have tough conversations for any other reason than to seek their good and to seek their transformation. Jesus believed that people can change. So one of the most depressing things to me as a pastor, just as a person, is when I perceive that someone has lost the ability or they've chosen to stop believing that people change. Is there anything more depressing than when someone, after making years of making the same mistakes again and again, they just finally go, you know, I am who I am, and this is just who I am. And all those times that I thought I was changing, but I really didn't, those were just phases, and they meant nothing, and I... I, I can't change. Or when somebody gets their heart broken and they say, or their friends tell them, once a cheater, always a cheater. That is like one of the most anti-Christian things you can say. That mentality is anti-Christ. Because the reason Christ came to the earth and had tough conversations with human beings like us is because he believed that people can change. How? That's the question. Not through self-help, not through behavior modification, not through tinkering with your thoughts or behaviors. There's something else here, okay? So let's think about one of the tough conversations Jesus had. Jesus had a really tough talk with a rich guy once, and it didn't go well. And the rich guy walked away, and Jesus let him walk away. Jesus let the rich guy walk, which isn't something that most pastors do very often. Jesus had no problem with it. His disciples had a problem with it, partially because some of them were wealthy, I think. There's evidence that some of them were wealthy and well-educated, despite what you may have heard. But also because they were part of this thing now, and they were probably sick of picking grain and eating raw grain when they got hungry. They were like, Jesus, we probably could use a rich guy. And you're letting him walk. And this rich guy in question seemed like a really good guy. He kept all the commandments. He like wanted to be good. He was asking Jesus, what must I do? And then Jesus just gives him this unattainable goal, like go and sell everything that you have and give it all to the poor. And the rich guy's like, I'm going to pray about it and I'm going to hit you back. <laughs> all right. So, so I don't know what happened. Like, I hope he ends up coming back around. But the disciples were like, if he isn't good enough, who among us can be saved? And Jesus said about the same, during the same uh, teaching about the same guy, he said, it is 
harder to get a camel through the eye of a needle than it is to, for a rich man to get into heaven. He's easier. I say that wrong? It's easier. Sorry. Thank you for quoting me on that. So, so hold me accountable. Tough conversation. But it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. My Lord, who even has hope? And so that's another thing that a lot of people know about like the Bible, that they don't believe in the Bible, but they'll, they'll quote that passage to Christians and say, why are some Christians rich? Hypocrites. Look what Jesus said about rich people. Well, that's not all he said. Because what he said next is what really matters. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, meaning the camel and the needle, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Meaning that something that looks impossible to us is possible with God. A camel, and as far as God is concerned, God can push a camel through the eye of a needle and God can push a rich man into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus believed that anyone can change and that every sinner is redeemable. Every sin can be washed away. There's no one who is far enough away from him to be beyond redemption or beyond transformation. So Jesus saw that in every sinner, and I pray that we do too, y'all. Because there's, as I said, there's nothing sadder than when we lose sight of the fact that anyone can change, not by our own power, but by the grace of God, people can change. You can change. I can change. The people you're leading through a time of transition, they can change through it by the grace of God. So the New Testament says when you receive Jesus as the the Lord of your life, there is a new creation. You are a new creation. You're not just the same you now, but you go to church. It's not just a new and improved version of you. It is a new creation that God has done. When you accept that on faith, the change, it comes from God. It's a work of his grace. So listen, change is hard, and it will always be hard. There will always be change. Your job as a follower of Jesus and as a leader of your life and a leader of others as well. As we said last week, a leader just has influence with people. That's what a leader is. You're a leader. And your job, as far as change is concerned, is not just to to batten down the hatches and survive the next wave of change that hits you. Your job is to prepare yourself and those you're leading for the next wave of change before it's come. And when it comes to thrive in those seasons, not just survive. But to get there, we have to learn to have tough conversations because that's where, that's where the transformation really begins. So if you're struggling with this and you're a pleasant person, you're a, an agreeable person, and tough conversations are a foreign language to you, I encourage you to start with the questions. You can even take the questions Jesus asked and adapt them to the people in your life. And you can ask them the same kinds of questions and then listen for their response. Why do you worry? What are you anxious about? Where is that anxiety taking you? What's it doing for you? Can you add anything to your life by worrying the way that you are? What about faith? What does faith mean to you? Where is your faith? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you? 
Who do you say that he is? Do you love him? These kinds of questions can spark deeper conversations that will not be easy and won't always be pleasant, but these are the conversations that spark transformation during times of change and upheaval. I don't know what kinds of change and transitions are present in this room right now. I bet the range of, of, of adversity is pretty wide and surprising. As change is a universal truth. But I pray that you don't just sit tight and survive the change. I pray that you take the message you've heard today and the words and ways of Jesus and apply them to your own lives because there's something that he can do in times of change and adversity that can only be done in times of change and adversity. It opens us up to new understandings, perspectives, and priorities. And so seize this moment if the waves of change are beating you. Seize this moment with your family, your friends, your sphere of influence. Seize the moment, have the tough conversation, and have it like Jesus did, because you believe that by the grace of God, anyone can change. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, message today. Thank you for Jesus, who shows us a better way to live, a better way to have these difficult talks with the people that we're leading, and in some cases, the people that we love dearly. Lord, it's easier for us just to coast and cruise and and, and just try and skim the surface and, and just enjoy life. But if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we have to follow in his footsteps. And that means understanding the potential of every moment in life, but especially the, the consequential seasons of change and transition and, and how those seasons open our hearts and minds up to, to something new. Lord, during those times, instead of just surviving, show us how to thrive by inviting others into difficult conversations that may not always be pleasant, but that do yield great results and fruit of of transformation, the transformation that you seek to bring about within us. I pray for those who feel like they're at their wit's end and they are just white-knuckling it through the season that they're in. Help them to see the hope that they have in you and that you are with them always and you are with them now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.